Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series, our new series, through the lives and ministry of two great prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. I love these Old Testament narratives. It's fascinating to see them come alive as we see how all the parts relate to the whole, how stories and narratives like this fit in with the great story and the great narrative of the Lord Jesus. It's very edifying to me and I hope for you. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. 1 Kings 18, verses 1 through 21. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine, it was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah, he feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. And so they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my Lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent, sent to seek you. And when they would say he's not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, that he cannot find, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say to me, go to your Lord and say, behold, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered him, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord, and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me 
at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent and summoned all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord Yahweh is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, follow him. And the people, they did not answer him a word. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, this past April, another hero of World War II quietly passed away. Her name was Mimi Reinhardt. I'd be surprised if any of you had heard of her. She was 107 years old. Now, there were over 16 million Americans. She was not American, but just to put this in context about the greatest generation, over 16 million Americans participated in World War II. We have less than 200,000 left. In about 15 or 20 years, there will probably be no more left. Well, for those of you who don't know Mimi Reinhardt, she assi assisted Oscar Schindler, okay, in his efforts, his successful efforts to save over a thousand Polish Jews from the Nazi extermination camps. She assisted Oscar Schindler in developing that list. Who here saw the movie Schindler's List? It came out in 1993 and recounts his efforts to save over a thousand Polish Jews. He did it by convincing the Nazis that he needed these Polish Jews to work, work in what had been his enamel factory and came, became a munitions factory that he convinced the Nazis would be used to further the Nazi cause. He needed as many Polish Jews as possible to help his factory go. And they came up with these lists of people to go out and recruit to work in the factory. Mimi Reinhardt helped him establish this list. Schindler and Reinhardt, they are heroes. And we get introduced to a similar kind of hero in our text today, a man by the name of Obadiah. Not, be, not to be confused with the book of Obadiah or the prophet Obadiah. This is a different individual. This Obadiah, he is Ahab's chief of staff. And he risked everything to save a hundred Jewish prophets from Jezebel's extermination campaign. Okay, so if you recall from last week, Ahab, he was the worst king in a long line of bad kings of the northern kingdom. So for the Bible to describe Ahab as the worst of all of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, that was saying something. That was quite a claim. And he took as his wife a Baal-worshipping pagan named Jezebel, okay? And Jezebel, Jezebel was bad news, okay? So if you were to hear um, sermons maybe in the 1950s and 60s, and the preacher was trying to encourage the ladies not to be loose or immoral, the preacher would say, don't be, what, a Jezebel. You know, you would not want to name your daughter Jezebel. Okay, Jezebel was 
bad, bad news. And her god, Baal, was the Canaanite god of what? Of the rain and the harvest, okay? And Ahab brought the worship of Baal into Israel after marrying her. Ahab even built a temple to Baal and put it in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. So if you have your insert again, let's look at our handy-dandy map here. Let's orient ourselves to some key places as it relates to our text. If you look at the very center of your map, you'll see Israel in all caps, in bold, okay? That's the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes of the north, that comprises Israel, the two tribes of the Lord's people in the south, that now comprises Judah. So this is very confusing, I know. You have the people of God divided into two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, two kings, you have a king in the north, a king in the south, and so the places we need to be aware of, if you look at Israel right in the middle, look to the left, and a little above, you'll see Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, okay? That's where the northern kings established worship in the northern kingdom. That's where Ahab built a temple or a house, okay, for Baal, the Canaanite god of fertility and prosperity and rain and storm, okay? If you look a little bit above um, Samaria on the coast, you'll see Mount Carmel. Look above Samaria to your west, to your left, above on the coast, you'll see Mount Carmel. That's where this showdown later in our text happens, okay? Do you see that? Okay, and then after they leave Mount Carmel, they're gonna go to the south, they're going to go down and to the right, to the east, they're going to go to Jezreel. So there's three key places in our text today, Samaria, Mount Carmel, and Jezreel. Those are the places referred to in our text. Okay, back to our narrative, back to our text. So Samaria is where Ahab imports the worship of Baal. He builds a temple to Baal. God has enough. God sees fit to discipline the northern kingdom, and he does it by way of a drought, okay? And he sends Elijah to deliver the news to Ahab and to Ahab's court that a drought is coming, and it will not remit until the Lord says so, okay? And so as of the timing of our text, it is now three years later and the drought has been absolutely devastating. Let's look at our text, verses 1 and 2. After many days, the word of the Lord came, came again to Elijah. Elijah would have been, okay, I'm sorry, the last place on your map, if you look back at your map. Do you remember where the Lord had sent Elijah to hide him? It was the last place you would ever expect. He sent Elijah to hide out in Zarephath, okay? That's in the very top part of your map, okay? So that's where Elijah had been when the Lord called Elijah back into his service and said, okay, I have a new job for you. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. The third year of what? The third year of the drought, saying, 
Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. In other words, it's time for the drought to end. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, and notice this comment from the narrator, from the writer, to clarify, now the famine was severe in Samaria. Okay, that's where he had set up the worship for the Canaanite god Baal, and so the severity of the famine was going to be felt very keenly there. We talked about this last week. You know, who here enjoyed the rain this past Thursday? Did you get rain? Was it shocking to you? Did you not know what it was? I mean, I can remember walking outside and seeing the storm coming, and like the lightning storm was pretty intense and impressive. It was, it was amazing, the rain. We hadn't had it in about six weeks. Can you imagine what they would have felt to have a drought for three years? That was a real thing. This is a true historical account. These were real people. This is one of the driest and most arid places in the world. They struggle for rain anyway. And to not have rain for three years, catastrophic. The Lord was bringing the drought to an end. Verses three through six. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Okay, now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. The name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. Think about this incredible providential placement. The man who was running Ahab's house was a servant of Yahweh, and he feared the Lord greatly. So someone had placed someone in a very, very strategic position behind the scenes to help the Lord's people in the midst of a terrible place. Verse 3 again, Ahab called Obadiah. Of course, Ahab has no idea that Obadiah is loyal to the Lord. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Verse 4, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, so apparently Jezebel had engaged in an extermination campaign, Jezebel is trying to liquidate and eliminate all the prophets of God in the northern kingdom. When Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah, he took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and with water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the grasses of water, to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and the mules alive, and not lose some of the animals. And so they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction, now notice this clarification, by himself. And Obadiah went in another direction by himself. Now isn't that interesting? Why in the world would the king of Israel go by himself to look for water and for grass? And why would he send his chief of staff to go by himself? Why wouldn't you send thousands of people to go find and see if there's water and grass. Well, it's because Ahab was going to hoard it for himself. Ahab didn't want the word to get out if there was any such thing and have other people go to it. He was going to use it for himself. 
I think the narrator is presenting to us an incredible contrast. Here you have Obadiah, the servant of Yahweh, risking life and limb to hide the prophets of the Lord. Okay, like I said, at great risk to himself to provide provide for 100 people. I mean, that would have been very difficult to provide food and water for however long for 100 people right under Ahab's nose. Great risk to himself. And then you have Ahab, the king of Israel, who should be the steward of the house of Israel. And his concern wasn't for his people. What was it for? It was for his animals. Now, I love animals. This is no disrespect to animals. But this was such a misalignment of priorities. Okay, because, you know, showing concern for his animals was really showing concern for himself so that he and his household would be cared for. Remember who this book was written for. It was written for the Jews in exile, a people who had slowly and incrementally turned their backs on the Lord. The more time God's people had spent in the land, the farther and farther and farther they drifted. In other words, Ahab, he did not just happen. He was simply the worst and latest expression of a long line of disobedient kings, okay? It should serve as a warning to us that we are not immune to this pattern, okay? Um, We've talked about this before, how um, typically sin works incrementally and progressively in our lives and hearts. You know, typically we don't just commit a great sin or a significant sin out of nowhere. Typically, the degree to which we commit significant sins, it's the fruition of a thousand small compromises until you wake up one day doing things and justifying things that you would have never done before. The writer of First and Second Kings is writing this these books to the people in exile as a cautionary tale. In other words, don't let what happened to the people of Israel happen to you when you go back to the land, when you get reinstated to the land. Okay? He was telling the people in exile to check your heart and evaluate your heart. Are you ready to go back? Have you learned the lessons of your predecessors? In Israel, you know, it was written really as a question mark to the people in exile. Where are you on this? You know, it was trying to take their temperature spiritually. How are you doing? We should be a people who learn from this, who with regularity should be evaluating our hearts, evaluating our priorities from a spiritual, Christ-centered perspective. Because appearances can be deceiving. And that's a frightening thing. Everything can look fine and everything can be very much not fine. In terms of appearances can be deceiving. So prior to God calling Elijah into his service, it appeared like God had abandoned the northern kingdom. If you would have been living there at that time, it looked like God was not at work. 
it looked like God was handing over his people to Baal worship. But appearances can be deceiving. That's not what was going on at all. God was very much at work behind the scenes and at just the right time with just the right person, God raised up Elijah to announce that sanctions were coming. Where it looked like God was not at work, God was very much at work. And the reverse is also true. Things can look fine and healthy, obscuring the fact that things are not fine and things are not healthy. Beloved, honestly, and this is a question for me, how often do you pray for the Holy Spirit to evaluate and search out your heart and reveal to you things that should not be going on in your life, difficult patterns, blind spots, hardness of heart. One of my favorite psalms, and this is very convicting, when the psalmist prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How much are we intentionally and self-consciously praying that prayer? How often are we asking the Holy Spirit to make our hearts and our consciences sensitive and attuned to conviction of sin? You know, this, this, this book is, is a cautionary tale of what happens when people don't do this. When they justify their sin, you know, they don't, they don't, they're not introspective about what's going on in their hearts and their minds. Are you less sensitive spiritually um, than you were a year ago today? Do you see any bad patterns or troubling patterns evolving in your heart and life? If you were to ask your spouse or a dear friend who knows you in the Lord, you know, if anything needs to change, do they see anything in you? Any, any, any places that need to grow? We should be doing that. Everything looked like the Lord was not at work and he was at work. Other times in Israel, everything looked fine and it wasn't fine. These are all questions we should be asking. Verses 7 through 21. Let's continue the narrative. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face. I mean, it's like he was meeting a celebrity. And he said, is it really you? Is it you, my Lord, Elijah? And Elijah answered him, it is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Now, this is kind of interesting. Why is he asking this? And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he's not there, he or this king or this authority would take an oath of the kingdom or the nation that they had not found you. 
Another, in other words, a report would have come that, okay, he's in this area, and then Ahab would send out people to look for him. They wouldn't find him. And then those people would say to that area, but you said he was here. And those people would say, I promise. You know, people reported that he was here, and he wouldn't be there. Okay, where was Elijah? Like, the reader knows where he was. He was by the, by the brook Kareth on your map, and then he was in Zarephath. What was going on? So obviously, Obadiah is concerned. He's going to go to Ahab and say, Elijah's here. Okay, go meet him. And then he's worried Ahab is going to go try to meet with Elijah, and Elijah wouldn't be there. And then Obadiah was worried that Ahab would hold him accountable for that. What was going on? Well, um, I don't know if any of you followed this really sad story of that um, young girl and, and the young man, Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie from this past year, who um, were, they were living together and they were traveling in a van out west and Gabby went missing and then Brian Laundrie became the primary suspect and then Brian was spotted with his parents down in Florida and then Brian disappeared and so they created a tip line to try to find Brian and tips came in from all over the country with people that were sure they had seen Brian, which led to a wild goose chase. Well, ultimately, they found the remains of Brian in the Everglades, and Brian was never at any of those places that he had been reported at being cited as what had happened. Well, that happens all the time when they create these tip lines, okay? And Ahab had created this ancient Near Eastern tip line to try to find Elijah. And so all these people reported Elijah's here, Elijah's here, but he wasn't any of those places, and it had driven Ahab crazy. And so, you know, Obadiah's concerned. He goes back and reports where Elijah is, and then he was concerned that Elijah wouldn't be there. So that's kind of what's going on here. Look with me at verse 13. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. He's going to kill me when he can't find you. Okay? Why does the narrator include this? The narrator includes this to help the reader understand just how much Ahab was after Elijah that he was searching for him, hunting for him, availing you know, himself of all the resources of the kingdom to find Elijah, to take Elijah out. Just think if he would have spent all that time and money repenting and orienting his heart back to the Lord rather than just trying to find and take out Elijah. Look at verse 15. Elijah said to Obadiah, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Can you imagine the courage that it took on Elijah's part to present himself to Ahab and all the resources that Ahab at his disposal to liquidate Elijah? That is Trust in the Lord. That is true biblical courage. 
Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house. Okay, I will just say again, it is easy to live in self-delusion. Who did Ahab really think the problem was? This is how dark his heart was. This is how hard Ahab's heart was that he was truly convinced that the problem was Elijah. He should have been looking in the mirror, but he was blame-shifting everything on Elijah. This is convicting to me. This should be convicting to you. The degree to which you and me, we can be just like Ahab, thinking everything's fine. You know, being totally blind to the issues going on in our heart. That's the problem of the Pharisees, okay? They pointed out and looked at the speck in their brother's eye, totally unaware of the massive log in their own. To what degree is that pattern going on in your life and mine? Verse 18, Elijah answered, Oh, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Asherah, think of Asherah as Baal's girlfriend, his consort, if you will, okay? And they would um, relate at at the end of every season, and then that's where the harvest would come from. Verse 19, Therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent, he summons all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. You can see where that is on your map. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, obviously some time has elapsed. They go from Samaria. They travel to Mount Carmel. Thousands of Israelites come as well. Verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Why did they not answer him a word? Because they were conflicted. They were ambivalent. They didn't know who they would vote for, Baal or Yahweh. I'm not going to read verses 22 through 36. I don't want to shock any of you. I'm just going to just recount the story. It's one of the most dramatic in the entire Bible. This showdown on Mount Carmel. You know the story well. So Elijah invites thousands of people to come, and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put two sacrifices on the top of Mount Carmel. And the God who sends fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, that's going to show who the real God is. And so Elijah, you know, it's like, this is probably very disrespectful. I don't mean this. It's like, you know, I'm not, I should not compare this to professional wrestling at all, so I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but he's like the, 
I don't even, I can't believe I'm even saying this. He's like, it's not in the notes, I'm sorry, session. He's like this Old Testament promoter, okay? He's promoting, like, we'll call him a boxing promoter, okay? And so in front of all these people, thousands of Jews, he's like, okay, here's the deal. There's your sacrifice. He goes, you guys can have all day, have at it, do anything you need to do, call down fire from heaven for your God, and let's see what happens. And so the prophets of Baal, there's 850 prophets there, you know, and they pray and they call out to Baal all morning long, and what happens? Nothing happens. And so then they rant and they rave and they cry and they cut themselves, okay? And what does Elijah do? Now, we would not encourage our children to do this, like if they're like, you know, playing a basketball game or a tennis match, you know, we call this kind of talking trash or taunting. And Elijah goes up to them and he says, you know, like maybe your God's going to the bathroom. Really, perhaps he's on a trip somewhere. Okay, maybe he's just busy. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he needs some hearing aids. And they just panic and they continue to do this all day long. The day comes to an end and absolutely nothing has happened. In true promotional style, okay, like the ancient Near Eastern Don King, if you will, what does Elijah do? Then he says, okay, here's what we do. He's like, you know, bring me some water. And so water is brought, and he basically puts his sacrifice in a swimming pool, okay, to handicap himself. I can remember when I was 12 or 13, the tennis pro at our local club thought we were too arrogant, okay, in our, in our confidence, and our tennis abilities. Ryan Friend will appreciate this. So to bring us down to earth, he said, I could beat all of you with the cover on my tennis racket. Who here can remember back to the old school days when tennis rackets had covers, okay? Most of you, oh, come on now, I know. <laughs> Most of you can remember when tennis rackets had actual covers, okay, like vinyl covers, and they made the racket heavy. If you ever tried to swing a tennis racket with the cover on, it was impossible. His name was Ted Cox. He said, I'll beat all of you with the cover on my tennis racket to show you who's boss he killed all of us with the cover on his tennis racket, okay? This is the ancient Near Eastern way of winning with the cover on your tennis racket, okay? He had, he had doused the sacrifice with water, okay? And then he fervently prays. And like, like have any of you ever seen, have you ever been, hopefully not, but ever seen a lightning strike in purpose? Have you ever been near a lightning strike. Hopefully not many of you. You ever watched one on a video? Okay, I, I encourage you today, go on YouTube and search lightning strikes water. So how, somehow somebody's like backyard camera captured, there's this canal by the ocean. Okay, lightning strikes the canal and it is like there is a massive explosion on the water. It is like blowing the water out of the canal. You can't fathom the power of that lightning bolt. That is exactly what happened after Elijah prayed. When it says fire came down from heaven, that's their way of describing a massive lightning bolt. 
If you remember back from last week, there's this Canaanite relief that was found in 1932 from this area that depicts the Canaanite god Baal. And what did he have in his hand? He had a lightning bolt that he was throwing down. This was Yahweh God Almighty's way of saying, I am the God of the storm. I am the God of the rain. I control the lightning. And just imagine in your, it was like a bomb detonated the sacrifice of the Lord. I really have goosebumps just, just even describing this. I'll just, this is not in your bulletin. Let me just read. Elijah prayed, O Lord, answer me. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the living Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. In other words, it just exploded everything. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord Yahweh, he is God. The Lord Yahweh, he is God. To say they were overwhelmed by what they witnessed would be an understatement. Incredible. Remember that. All right, go to panel five. We'll land the plane here. First Kings 18, 41 through 46, the end of the story. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. See, Ahab most likely had prepared a banquet table to celebrate his victory. When his victory did not come, when Yahweh went, he said, you better go ahead and enjoy your lunch because rain is coming. The drought is over. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. He's going to celebrate that the drought has come to an end. Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. He didn't go up to feast. He went up to pray. He bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, which is a way of saying he fervently prayed. And he said to his servant, so he's got a servant. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And his servant went up and looked and said, there's nothing he said, go again. Notice what number? Seven times. Seven is, the, is, a, is a number that pictures, pictures fullness and completion. Seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, the servant reports back, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. In other words, the fullness of the trial has come to an end. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. If you look at your map, they're going to go from Mount Carmel down to Jezreel. You know, the roads would have been brick hard, rock hard during the drought. But it's like, if you don't leave now, those things are going to get muddy and waterlogged. You'll have no chance to get to Jezreel. So he says, you better go. The rains are coming. Verse 45. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and these were the best words they'd ever heard, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab. 
to the entrance of Jezreel. What was the purpose in all this? I want to end with this. What was the purpose? I think it's fascinating how the Old Testament anticipates all this. Elijah's specific prayer was, Lord, answer this, do this, to turn the hearts of the people back to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the living God of the Lord's people, has always been from beginning to end, from beginning to end, after our hearts. That's what he wants from you and me. He doesn't want just kind of begrudging compliance. He doesn't want just our worship. He wants our hearts. He wants us to love him and serve him and long to please him from the heart. Not in order to get to heaven, but because we're going to heaven because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. More than anything else, if you hear nothing else, Jesus Christ, the word of God, is after your heart. He's trying to grow you and change you and mold you into the image of his son, not only for his glory, but for your good and for mine. A major mark of growth in the Christian life is when obedience and worship comes from the heart. A major mark of obedience in the Christian life is when you want to come on Sundays and worship in a gathered way with the Lord's people to celebrate Jesus and what he's done for you. That is a major mark of growth in the Christian life. Friends, where is your heart today? Ask the Holy Spirit, and I promise he will show you. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father. Boy, there's lots of details in a text like this. Father, we pray that we would not be like the people of the northern kingdom. Father, we pray that we would be a people with sensitive hearts, with soft hearts towards your gospel. Holy Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would grow us and change us and mold our hearts and shape our hearts more into the image and likeness of Jesus. Father, I pray that more than anything, our hearts would long to love Jesus, to know him, and to make him, home, make him known. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen and amen.